Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living and the solutions. Today, I have a very special guest on, Dr. Mike Chupp. He's the new CEO of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, and their website is cmda.org. And today, we're going to have an important discussion about medical education. We talk a lot on the show about how social issues are pervading the healthcare system. You would think that it's the most important thing in our society right now, and I think it's affected education. I think it's affecting every segment of our society. But I think most people don't know the effect it's having on the, the teaching and the medical education of our medical students. And I wanted Dr. Chuck to come on to speak about how that's affecting medical education. When I was a medical student years ago, or not that long ago, um, it was all about putting your head down and, and getting into your books. Nothing else interfered with your your process of learning, you were literally in a cave pretty much until you graduated. That's not what's going on now. And I've been doing some some due diligence on this, and I'm getting a little concerned that medical students are not not necessarily spending as much time on the ABCs of, of medical education, and they're really spending a lot of time on social issues. And that's becoming the, the forefront almost in how they interact with patients, how they interact with each other. And how I think our medical system is moving more towards a socialist type of system where we have single payer and Medicare for all. So, Dr. Chubb, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on this morning. It's really a pleasure to have you. I know how busy you must be, but I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you, Dr. George. It's certainly a very important topic, and I'm honored that you invite me on your show today. Thank you. Well, first of all, let's Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're now the new CEO of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, but before that, you were a practicing um, surgeon, correct? I was. I was trained officially in general surgery um, at the, uh, in Indianapolis uh, at Methodist Hospital. I did my surgical residency and practiced in Southwest Michigan for three years with a large multi-specialty group. Uh, and then, but I had long-term plans of uh, actually being a missionary surgeon in Africa. So my wife Pam and I along with two small children, moved to Kenya in 1996, and uh, I thought I would be doing uh, general surgery for the rest of my career, Dr. George, um, but I uh, ended up doing all kinds of different surgeries <laughs> and uh, found I really enjoyed medical education because we uh, found that the probably the most rewarding aspects of our time there were having students from the University of Nairobi and Moy University, and then two more medical schools cropped up, and we were a popular place, a big hospital. We did uh, did about five, somewhere between five and 7,000 major surgeries a year at a hospital called Tenwick, Tenwick Hospital, T-E-N-W-E-K, and I went on to become the medical director, um, orthopedic traumatologist, and then um, in 2015, a hero of mine um, that I um, had been mentored by earlier in my career asked me if I would move uh, from Tenwick to Tennessee, to Bristol, Tennessee, and uh, to follow him and potentially, if the board approved, become the chief executive officer. And the board did that, and I started September 1st of this year. That's a, that's, um, a varied resume, and I think a really rewarding one because you've seen everything from the front line, from being, I guess, you know, really thrown out there, and I, before we were we were on on the show, just talking about how people interact with each other and the consequences of that. And you're the front line of of healing, and you understand the the process of do no harm. And it's not about the money; it's not about anything else, but taking care of your patient and that doctor patient relationship. To me, that is the essence of medicine. I think we're losing that in this system, and. I want to segue quickly then to what do you think is going on or what do you think about what's going on with medical education and social issues? It seems to me that instead of us dealing with people based on their content of character, just you taking care of your patient, there's a lot of filters all of a sudden being placed between the doctor and the patient, how you're supposed to act, what you're supposed to say, how you're supposed to feel. And I just don't think that's, that's, I don't think that's healthy. What's your opinion on it? 
Well, certainly a, a complicated issue, and I, I will tell you that my perspective on it probably three months ago is a little bit different than it is today just because it's, it is um, in the limelight here in the U.S. right now, um, a, an editorial that we've both read by Dr. Stanley Goldfarb um, from uh, Perelman Medical School and published in the Wall Street Journal, I think just got the social media buzzing about the whole idea of of focusing on patients and disease um, versus dealing with social issues, and I um, we CMDA we have uh, about nineteen thousand members and about um, somewhere between eighty and eighty five local community ministry groups across the country, and um, some of our ministry groups that are associated with universities, medical schools, have. Um, really been had to jump in and defend Christian medical students, especially because uh, the students are being forced to uh, use pronouns and to introduce themselves to patients in a very strange and awkward way, Dr. George, that mm-hmm. I know we're going to talk about a lot of different things in this, mm-hmm. in this program, but uh, I just can't imagine having to walk into a patient's room and spend three or four minutes working through the vagaries of explaining that I prefer to be called him and he, and what do you prefer to be called? And it's just awkward. Um, It certainly is a different day and age for medical students these days. You know, as a a scientist and medical students, for the most part, or at least we've all taken biology, I don't think anybody can sit here and know that there's a a chromosome or genetic... um, uh, what makes us male or female is genetic. It's chromosomes. It's not this uh, phenotype that they're trying to, you know, if you say that you are something, then you are all of a sudden. Why can't people just interact with the patient? It just doesn't make any sense. Is this part of a, is this a module? Is this, how does that, how did, I guess, how did it come about that that would be the first way that you introduce yourself? Who's coming up with this stuff? Well, it's part of a of a national dialogue and certainly political correctness um and certainly some folks in in influence and and power in our country have been have been driving this and as you know Dr. George we as physicians we mentioned it before the program that we tend to put our heads down and we tend to be conformists we're taught conformity all the way through medical school and, uh, you know, you, you look at the level just a year or two ahead of you as a first-year student. You look at a second-year student and, and get your maybe hints from them on how you're supposed to behave. And you know what it takes to get to that next level, uh, getting up the, uh, the mountain of success. And so we are, we tend to be, we talk about the clouds of conformity. We tend to conform. And so all it takes is some influential, influential people at the top of the mountain to say, this is what's correct. This is what's right. And uh, I think there has been sort of a tsunami of political correctness um, and defining discrimination in ways that were just uh, were just not there even ten years ago, uh, Dr. George. So we uh, at CMDA we find ourselves in a in a very unique position as a general surgeon, orthopedic traumatologist. Uh, didn't believe that I would be having discussions um, with people about simple, basic things that you could build uh, a medical education upon foundationally, like 46 chromosomes and there's an X and a Y, mm-hmm. and, and therefore th- that binary um, binary existence that we have, our biological sex. So I, I, I do feel my concern, um, um, and I don't want to get too far afield from your main focus, um, but... I, I do feel that this is one area where um, physicians and other healthcare professionals of faith keep coming back to science and, and, and evidence-based medicine um, and talking about outcomes. And I think it, it's upon us to be willing to be in an uncomfortable, nonconformist position to be talking about the evidence and keep coming back to evidence-based medicine mm-hmm. and outcomes from our interventions, uh, Dr. George, and whether they really are improving the outcomes of our patients because we care about them. We want to see their, their health and their uh, welfare improved, not just to accede to their requests uh, of the month. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. And there is consequences for acquiescing. You know, if people, if you're 
gender identification and your biological gender, your, your actual sex is different and you have to look for certain diseases in men or women and you don't, there's people slipping through the cracks not being diagnosed, I understand, because of their unwillingness to, or I don't know if it's the patient or on the side of the doctor, but there's a there's a consequence if you're not looking for ovarian issues or if you haven't had a sex change, a cervical cancer, for example, no one ever goes to the GYN because they consider themselves a biological male. So this is, or I should say, consider themselves male, not biological. But there's consequences for all of this. And I don't know if playing into what society says you should do is really what's best for the patient. On that note, let's take our first break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. If you've tried taking over-the-counter medications, but still have problems with nasal congestion, recurrent sinus infections, sinus headaches, or a dry mouth when you wake up in the morning, why not fix the problem? From natural integrative treatment to minimally invasive surgery, Peachtree ENT Center will work with you to find the solution that works best for you. Call 404-591-9100 today to make an appointment or visit us at PeachtreeENTCenter.com because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is Dr. George from Medicine on Call. Each week I speak about our healthcare system and the problems with it. One of the main problems is the doctor-patient relationship. I've found that patients really crave time, the time to ask their doctor questions, and physicians crave the time to answer those questions in a thorough manner. Towards that end, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is pleased to announce a new video telemedicine service. We now offer consultation for second opinions and for people who'd like to learn more and ask questions about how to navigate the healthcare system in a cost-effective and efficient manner. Go to peachtreeentcenter.video-visits.com to learn more. We must guard against the acquisition of unwanted influence by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. The War State by Michael Swanson is a must-read for anyone interested in the critical 20 years after World War II when the United States morphed from a constitutional republic to a global imperial superpower. Get The War State by Michael Swanson from Amazon.com today. People say I'm scary. (laughs) I say scary is not knowing how a cable bill of over 100 bucks got so expensive. Say goodbye to the way TV used to be. Introducing Sling TV. Instantly stream over 25 channels, including the most popular live sports, shows, and movies for just 20 bucks a month. With Sling, there are no long-term contracts, no hidden fees, and no rental equipment. Just watch the best of live TV on your television, tablet, computer, or phone. Anytime, anywhere, for only $20 a month. Enough is enough. Stop paying too much for TV. Take back TV with Sling and save. Go to slingtv.com and watch now for seven days free. Take a closer look at Adore Me, the new way to shop intimates online. With 500 styles from petite to plus, a little something is sure to catch your eye. See for yourself. Visit AdoreMe.com to get your first brawn panty set for $24.95. So it's your friend's birthday. How do you find the perfect gift? Download the Amazon app and let it find you. Just seeing your mom reading that book your friend's been talking about? Scan the barcode, buy it with one click, and you'll get regular delivery updates. The Amazon app. What are you looking for? You're listening to Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Mike Chubb. He's the new CEO of the Christian Medical and Dental Dental Association. 
And before the break, we were talking about consequences of doctors of the medical profession acquiescing to social pressure on how we should behave, knowing that it may run against what our Hippocratic oath is, which is to do no harm and to really be advocates for our patient. What's going, is there something that's happening in the medical education system in terms of, uh, for example, the different curricula? You know, we not, for example, we don't, not medical schools do a lot of nutrition, right? So that's something that may be a gap in medical education. Is anything being pushed out the typical medical education for social training, for social issues training? Is that happening? Well, I, I certainly, I, I would say as many medical schools as there are in the United States, and I don't know what the exact count is, um, Elena, whether it's 350 or 400 medical schools, we have groups on 319 campuses for CMDA, but there, I'm quite sure that there are some medical schools that have chosen to introduce some social justice curricula that have caused some compromise, but I will say that, I'll start with some basics, that um, when you and I went to medical school, we did, we, as I, you mentioned earlier on the program, you started us off that we had textbooks um, we had a very different modality for learning and testing than what student, medical students do today. They have a huge advantage today. They have much more access to knowledge, uh, Google search, phone apps. I, I was with a group of students here not far from Bristol, Tennessee, and they showed me a phone app um, which – uh, teaches some, uh, uh, physiology, which medical students all across the country buy this phone app, uh, with a cat as its, sign- as its, uh, mm-hmm. as its logo. And, uh, and it's amazing how much more standardized even the, the subject of physiology has become because of these popular courses. And so the digital information age has changed and has really improved, I think, in, in, in some respects the ability for students to get a lot of information in a hurry. And so, whereas you and I would go to textbooks, students today are learning how to access information very quickly, good information. And so I will say that that they do have a leg up on us and possibly even gaining some efficiencies that allow them to add other things to the curriculum. Um, In in sort of looking up this subject uh, a few months ago, Elena, I came across a Dartmouth study from 2013 in which the students and faculty from Dartmouth were looking at what, what should, uh, what should constitute social justice, uh, core competencies. And we have this political, I don't know, no, it doesn't matter where you are, who you are, we all have our bias and our political reference mm-hmm. points. And when we hear certain words, I mean, sometimes the hair goes up on the back of our necks. And I, I will say that social justice tends to be one of those very quickly political uh, terms. Mm-hmm. As I looked through what these students and faculty at Dartmouth put together, I must admit, as I looked through these 20 or 25 bullet points at what they said were core competencies, uh, Elena, I have to say, especially as someone who practiced overseas and cared about those on the fringe who weren't, you know, healthcare uh, disparities, mm-hmm. I like what I see in the bullet points. So at least in theory, you know, things like know the importance, history, and acceptable forms of informed consent. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Respect the right of the patient to choose among procedures or refuse a procedure due to preference if well-informed about the risks and benefits of the procedure. And so obviously the devil's in the details uh, in terms of how you define what is social justice. Another one, Elena, identify populations and individuals at risk for poor access to basic services and the determinants of access. Well, who doesn't want medical students coming through to understand how can I get my patient who's come through the door, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's for a tonsillectomy or for any head and neck surgery for you or for their gallbladder surgery for me, if they don't have insurance, how can I figure out how to get them access for a needed uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy? So when I read through this, uh, maybe three months ago, I was like, oh, social justice medicine. This is about climate control. This is about climate change. This is about going down the street and and having a, a poster about some hot button political issue. But I must admit that 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 at least what they what they came up with Dartmouth. Um, in terms of what core competencies would be, Dr. George, I like 
what I see, what they came up with, because I think it's good stuff. And so for those of us who are practicing physicians who maybe are, are boomers or uh, gener- generation Xers, I think we need to ask questions of these millennial students because they are really, really, um, they really care about these issues. And my concern is that if we write it off as being political, leftish, uh, progressive, and don't ask good questions, we will we will actually lose a podium with young healthcare professionals in training or in practice. And I, um, if I can't, if I can just mention, I was in Orlando, Florida, a couple of months ago with some students that I just think the world of. They they care about the poor. They, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that you had time in medical school. But I certainly didn't find all that much time to go work in a free clinic at night. But these students at the University of Central Florida. Um, go to a free clinic uh, for those who have no insurance in downtown Orlando, doing really good work. And so I had a chance to talk to them just because I, I've known them for a couple of years as they've come through medical school, Elena, and I just said, so tell me, I'm getting asked more and more about social justice issues. What do you guys, what do you, what do you think about when you hear about social justice issues and and being trained in medical school, is there time? And and their response is, we think it's really important. We also want to pass USMLE Step 1 exams, and we want to do well on those. Right. And so we think it's appropriate to have electives um, um, in, these, uh, in these sorts of issues of helping us identify people on the fringe and being advocates for people uh, that don't have. And we think it's really important, but... Uh, we do need to balance it with being able to pass step one. Do they feel like they can? Do they feel like they're being educated to do in that? Their, so in their, uh, so Dr. George, in their particular uh, school at the University of Central Florida, yes, they, they felt and uh, is a very intensive, their dean wants them to be the Harvard of Florida, of the South. And so they're very intensely, you know, their first year or two of medical school um, in the, in a more traditional basic science approach and introduction to clinical medicine and their students are doing well on, on step ones. Um, that being said, as I've looked at it, there are a number of schools in which uh, in the first two years, uh, social justice curriculum has become mandatory, um, and it, it tends to be very community-based, what I have seen, uh, very community-based, and uh, getting them uh, out into clinics and uh, with nonprofits out in the community and I, I would guess it's a school-by-school, case-by-case, maybe even student-by-student basis on the experience that they have of being exposed to patients um, out in the community early on um, who are neglected on the fringe um, and, and have significant disparities, disruption of their health care because of their uh, economic situation um, or family situation or whatever. Interesting. And I... I I I like the fact that you're that these students have taken the politics out of it and they've infused it with what medicine should be. I don't care if you're homeless or you've had a million dollars. Everybody, you need to be an advocate for whomever your patient is. You know, it doesn't matter. And yes. you know, when I trained in in New York, we got to see homeless people come in through the ER up to celebrities coming to the you know being admitted on the floor, everybody got treated the same way. And I really have, I don't think there should be a difference. It doesn't matter. You treat everybody the same. It shouldn't be this mindset of there's, you're you're creating differences between people in a way, right? And I like to, there's a question for me about the seniors versus everybody else. The way the system seems to work, the seniors are kind of on the outside looking in. You lived a good life. Let's make you comfortable. Let's put you in comfort care. That, to me, is a major issue, and I don't know if that's the same mindset that we had when we were training, where I don't care if you're 90. If you have the ability to be helped, and you want to be helped, and you should be, and you shouldn't have that choice taken away from you. I don't know if that's what the education system is bringing now. Um, before you well, answer, well, the, let me take a break before you answer because it's going to be a long answer and I want to hear it. So let's take a brief break. You're listening to Medicine on Call.
Welcome back to Medicine Call. We're speaking with Dr. Mike Chupp, the CEO of Christian Medical and Dental Association. And before the break, I, I wanted to bring up something that's really close to me, and that is the fact that we seem to be pushing people who are not, you know, not the youngest people in the world, you know, the seniors, they seem to be, I'm not sure I like what what medicine is doing to them, which is denying them care in some instances, not giving them the treatment of choice because they're seniors. And that's not something I don't think is being brought up in the social uh, justice movement. And I wanted to give you a chance to give me your thoughts on that, because that seems to be what Medicare for All is designed to do. It's, if you remember the complete live system, there is 15, I think age 15 to about 45, maybe 50. That's where all the healthcare dollars should be spent. Anybody who's outside that, that catchment, oh, well, let's make you comfortable. That's not healthcare. That's not medicine, in my opinion. What's your take on that? Well, I, I think it's going to be very difficult, uh, for any, uh, administration, any, any, um, leadership in this country politically to get by with a huge number of, uh, boomers, um, the elderly in our country and with the focus that we have on patient autonomy. I, uh, while there are times when autonomy, um, rubs me the wrong way, Dr. George, I would say on this particular issue that you've brought up, I think it's going to be difficult for any uh, single-payer system, uh, Medicare for all, to defeat the American desire to have uh, the ability to choose. And I don't know if you remember the, the point that I mentioned from even this Dartmouth uh, fairly liberal progressive curriculum on social justice core competencies, but respect the right of the patient to choose among procedures or refuse a procedure due to preference if they're well informed about risks and benefits. And so if if my 77-year-old 70, uh, mom, she's 77 right now, um, you know, wants comfort care and chooses comfort care, then I respect that right. But if she chooses to have um, if she chooses to have a right lung lobectomy for a uh, for a tumor or for a, a sarcoma, uh, a tumor of, uh, of the bone or muscle that's gone to her lung, and she chooses that, I'm, I I I think that it's going to be very difficult for even a single payer system, given the American mindset of autonomy, to defeat that. So I I'm I'm still hopeful in that regard. Um, and so certainly our Hippocratic Oath uh, that uh, I think still has some sway in our medical system in America, uh, Dr. George, of do no harm, uh, still has a great deal of influence on Western medicine and, and influence here in the United States. I realize that abortion is legal, and so there are some violations of the Hippocratic Oath. But I... I um, uh, Balanced against this uh, comfort care for <laughs> comfort care that you mentioned is the the other side of expensive care and and futility care, mm -hmm. and I think that's that's also a struggle that that we as physicians have um, in terms of families wanting to do anything and everything for a loved one and just helping to understand when care has become futile and. And hopefully bringing them to the level of understanding in which everyone agrees that, that grandma, great grandma, um, we really can't help her anymore and, and to let her go. From my standpoint, from looking at how the insurance model is worked out, we don't get that choice because it's not approved. It's not pre-certed. It's not covered. So even if we want to help our patients, we have a middleman in there. And under single payer, I think it will be the most powerful middleman, middleman you can possibly imagine if it's the government deciding what's covered, you know. So you can't get a pre-cert. You're not doing it. Even if the patient wants it, you want it, it's about what's covered. And I don't think that maybe people or medical students, and they don't know that side of it. I think it's all virtual. But when you start to try to get approval for things, it's amazing. And it's not just the seniors. It's everybody. I mean, I've gone through the Affordable yeah. Care Act, and those guys didn't get covered for anything necessary, and that's why I stopped taking it. Well, I certainly, Dr. George, defer to you uh, practicing in there, practicing in New York, and and uh, I I defer to your experience um, on that and what what you can and can't do. 
um, especially since a majority of my practice uh, was in East Africa uh, and in Southwest Michigan, and uh, certainly not having to deal with some of those uh, insurance bureaucratic uh, issues that you've had to deal with. So I do respect that. That's an absolute blessing, I got to tell you, not to have them looking, any insurance company looking over your shoulder and and literally practicing medicine without a license is really what's going on now in the front line. And I just, we need people in that fight. I'm not sure, and I'm, I'm again, curious to know, are the medical students being, yeah, I'm, indoctrination is a strong word, but if you don't know the other side and you're just being put into a system where you learn what you learn and there's no, there's no alternative. There's no, how can I put it? Um, it's one-sided pretty much, right? So if you're being an advocate for your patient, do they, I mean, you can't ask this question. It's kind of rhetorical, but do they have to do the pre-cert where they're working in the clinic and they're trying to get approval for the gallbladder surgery or whatever, and they have to fight the system and then get a real reality taste of, Yes, my patient needs it. Yes, I'm an advocate, but this is the mountain I'm going to have to climb in order to get them the care that they need. I wonder if medical students are getting that side of it so they get a full a full picture. Um, really good question, um, and I can't speak to active experience in an academic setting right now. Um, I I think that there are are ways if we can if we have can have a dialogue um, with medical students um, and and they're willing I think as willing as long as we're willing uh, Dr. George not to throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. and and to um, those those of us coming from a conservative perspective uh, can laud millennials uh, for their concern and care about these issues I mean they are um, they're 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 biblical. They're they're faith entrenched issues that we should speak up for those who have no voice, who cannot speak for themselves. The writer of Proverbs said, "Speak and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and and the needy." So these are issue issues. At least at CMDA, we care we care deeply um, about and advocacy. Um, I, I think if if students are challenged um, are challenged to be advocates for for patients. Um, and and to be wary of what uh, public servants are going to do uh, in terms of budgets, then I think that we can have some we can have some great champions among young people in healthcare if truly they are motivated by advocacy. Um, and and some of them would suggest, I mean, as they point at some of uh, the older physicians, some who've done quite well in their lives, that. Uh, um, fee for service that the motivation has been the almighty dollar. I, I must say that we have to be careful that we're not hypocrites. Uh, and I'm, I'm not referring Dr. George to anyone in particular here, but I, mm-hmm. I, I do think we have to realize the weaknesses of uh, some of our colleagues uh, over the last few decades uh, who've practiced medicine and made a lot of money uh, and haven't taken care of those, like you've mentioned earlier, being willing to take all comers. And that's given fee for service a black eye. You know, I think to a degree that's true, um, but I think that's actually the the pendulum has actually changed. It's it's come the other way. If you look at the direct primary care model, that's that's the doctor who's taking care of the patient who can't afford to go to the hospital, who may have Medicaid or Medicare but can't get in, or they don't cover what the patient needs, or they can't afford the medication that's prescribed. This is the front line. This is the true practice of medicine. I'd love to see those students actually follow around a direct primary care doctor who's taking care of a family of four who spend $160 a month for that whole family as opposed to not being able to afford their the deductible in their, uh, you know, their insurance, their commercial, or even pay the, the co-insurance for Medicaid and Medicare. So I think doctors are actually moved away from the system because I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's not fee-for-service, honestly, because those people who take fee-for-service are charging the same amount that they charge probably when they open their practice. It's the ones that are taking insurance that have been, their patients are priced out, not by the fall of the doctor, but because of the system 
I've seen people with $10,000 deductibles come into my office. So they're spending a couple thousand dollars a month, plus they have yes. to come up with $10,000 more. That is not the fee-for-service doctor that's pricing those folks out, period. That's the system. And if patients actually moved away from that, and this is my soapbox for 20 seconds, but if they moved away from that system, they would find that they could afford a doctor visit, that they would actually have a relationship with their doctor, that they could actually have a, a complete care. Like they'd know what's going on with the patient, not just write a prescription, but figure out why they need or they may need some help to, so they can avoid the medication. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the system, we need yes. to start another another model. And I think it, it does come down to being an advocate and being Christ-centered, in my opinion, because you are your brother and sister's keeper. You should care about them. The money comes. It doesn't matter. I mean, most people who go into medicine are not going into it for the money. That's for sure. <laughs> it's because you love what you do. But you need to pay your bills. You need to pay your student loans. And there's nothing wrong with being paid for a service that you're giving. But I think it's become artificially inflated. And students, if they, I think these are the, this is our future. If, if the people coming out of training would open up their own practice and stop becoming employees of various hospitals and, and priming this pump, this system would stop tomorrow. Well, I've, I have, uh, I will affirm uh, the comments about direct patient care. We've uh, a number of, of our members. Um, in fact, my predecessor, Dr. David Stevens, interviewed one of our family physicians on the West Coast uh, who had started uh, direct patient care practice, was very happy with it and mm-hmm. had a large group of, I don't know how many hundreds of patients they had in their practice, but they were they were happy with what they were receiving and uh, the, the physician was happy. And at our national convention in uh, in May, I met a number of doctors who had left behind a, a traditional practice and had also entered into direct patient care. So I think it is a model that's uh, rapidly growing. I don't have statistics and maybe you do, but it mm-hmm. seems like it is a, a modality that, that physicians and patients alike are beginning to choose uh, as uh, to choose first. Yeah, it's it's a fraction of what people are paying in the commercial and government-based model, and they're getting better care, and they're not spending, you know, not even three quarters more, three quarters less of what they'd be spending. And this is what medicine is about, you know, just being able to be, to have a relationship, to know your patient from cradle to grave, so to speak, and to be able to get them through the system without them having to fend for themselves. On that note, let's take our last break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. You can catch the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Mike Chupp. Um, He's the CEO of Christian Medical and Dental Association. And from one of the earlier segments, you you talked about how many chapters um, in various medical schools how do students find the Christian Medical and Dental, Dental Association when they matriculate at a medical school? Do you have an outreach for students, or do they just naturally find you because there's something that they're uncomfortable with and they want a like-minded, um, you know, like-minded support? I think there are different ways. Like I said earlier, about 319 campus groups, um, student groups in medical schools, dental schools, PA schools, nurse practitioner schools, um, optometry schools, so different kinds of schools. So that 319 includes the whole ball of wax. Mm -hmm. Uh, Essentially, uh, a lot of the students are very much interested uh, given the social pressures they're going to face. and for some of the students, it's the first time they will have stepped into a secular setting, a medical school, having gone through Christian education for a long time. So they're, uh, just like I did, month one of medical school at Indiana University, there was a notice, um, students interested in a Bible study, Christian students come, uh, se- led by second-year students, and that was very attractive to me. And I would say that's a word-of-mouth uh, spread. Students get to find out who those who are uh, those who are of faith and uh, encouraged to attend, and there's some some of the medical schools where there are uh, maybe 100 or 150 students per class, and 40 to 50 are in the CMDA group um, in 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 fellowship. And usually there's a faculty member who's a sponsor um, who helps. There's a lot of um, non-organic um, 
I would I would say just word of mouth mentoring that takes place between Christian faculty and the students. And I've had the privilege just in the last few months to be all over the country from Fresno to Richmond and from Orlando to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and to meet some of these students. And there's some of the healthiest um, students and emotionally mm-hmm. um, just because of a, of a vibrant group of uh, like-minded students that are encouraging one another and maybe not as cutthroat as uh, <laughs> other groups of students, but uh, a support group, if you will. Well, so nice. they, they can, they can go on our website. Certainly, uh, for students, we have a beautiful website, cmda.org, uh, slash, uh, students campus ministries. And, uh, we have a map there and they can find out who the contact, uh, is for any particular, uh, healthcare campus. Um, and, uh, stu- usually second year students are, uh, on the ground, uh, leading these student groups. Um, that's, it's been going on for 30 or 40 years, Dr. George. I had four second year students at Indiana who led our little group of about 15 to 20 Christian students that met once a week. And, uh, it was, uh, very formative for my career. What you just told me just jogged a question. This is a very special group of students who, I, you know, if I were going to medical school right now, I'd want to be part of this this group because it speaks to me. But how do they interact with? And we talked about social justice, and the social justice that you talked about is the Hippocratic oath is what being a physician is about. But there is a political arm to this social justice, and if you are, if you have a a calling and an answer, you answer to God as your first, as as who leads your life. And you refuse to do certain things, let's say abortion, for example. Are these students getting pushback from other students within their class? How much is this anti the the the, the tide of what we all perceive social justice to be, and, and the political side of it? Well, it's it's significant. I mean, the pressures are incredible, Dr. George. I'm really glad you've gone along this line of questions. The, the, the pressures are incredible. What we have done uh, at CMDA years ago, um, seeing what was coming, the handwriting on the wall in terms of bioethics and uh, physicians and uh, dentists and, and other types of healthcare professionals of faith, um, we developed some position statements, and those are uh, – you don't have to be a member to have access to those. A long list of position statements on all kinds of issues, bioethical issues, some uh, abortion, uh, transgenderism and transgender health, gender dysphoria, um, issues of, of caring uh, for uh, homosexuals, uh, issues on same-sex marriage, pornography, um, racism, all sorts of position statements. Those are taken – those are put together by an ethics committee and approved by our board. And the ethics committee members are some top-flight uh, bioethicists from big places like Mayo Clinic. Um, and uh, so we we, put, we have those out there. So students, we've actually had contact from some students who are in some schools where there's not an active group of Christians in medical school. And they have found our position statements, and we have linked them up to Christians in their community. Mm-hmm. And while there may not be a vibrant group, of, uh, of students being on that campus, one of our um, passions is to link up those uh, who are saying, I just, this is not consistent with my deeply held belief. I don't understand why I'm being told that I should be willing, if I'm going to go into OBGYN someday, mm-hmm. uh, that I should be willing to participate in abortion. And fortunately, Dr. George, the laws of the land are still such that uh, we are to be protected and we are engaged in a lawsuit at CMDA, even now in New York. Um, Health and Human Services um, has, uh, earlier this year in May, put out a uh, put out a new policy a statement protecting, with some teeth, uh, healthcare right of conscience for uh, students, residents, and graduates uh, who say, "I, I uh, upfront cannot participate in abortion." I will not uh, participate in euthanasia or even physician-assisted suicide mm-hmm. uh, if the patient requests me. Hippocratic oath sorts of stances, and still today in America, the, the laws of the land, many of them statutes, uh, I believe there are 25 statutes that protect um, our right to say, I will not. And 
patients are have the right to go elsewhere for their legal legal uh, abortion as it stands now, but I don't have feel I should not be under coercion to provide that service for the convenience. Convenience does not trump my sense of conviction for any patient. And we lost the first round of this lawsuit. We joined HHS. They were sued by Planned Parenthood in 12 different states, including the state of New York. We lost the first round, and we have just we are just now appealing that appealing that ruling by the federal judge in New York because we feel that the laws of the land, the the, the history, the track record is that rights of conscience are basic First Amendment rights, mm-hmm. and and I'll just tell you, Doctor George, the 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 approach of even the AMA um, and the uh, AAFP and other major medical societies is that this law opens the door for emergency care not to be provided. And it's just been a common slick sophistry, if you will, to confuse people that somehow physicians of faith, um, healthcare professionals of faith, um, are willing to even compromise patient outcomes in an emergency setting so we can stand on our principles. To combat that perspective, Dr. George, we did a survey of a 1,000 of our members. Um, We were joined by the Catholic Medical Association this summer, and we asked the question, do you care for patients, all patients who come through your door, regardless of their um, sex, race, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, and so forth, and basically 100% of the respondents, just under uh, 100% of the respondents said, yes, I take care of all comers who come through the door. Mm-hmm. And so this is not an issue. This is not an issue for, uh, and we want students to understand this. We, we just, we need to keep speaking the truth. We're not refusing care to people. But there are certain procedures and there are certain treatments that we will say, no, that crosses the line. And in basically every case, Dr. George, these are not emergencies. It's not an emergency for a man who believes he's a woman to get uh, um, a sex, a sex a gender-affirming surgery. Um, it is not an emergency in the vast, vast majority of cases, uh, 99% to have an abortion. And that is an, that is an elective procedure. And so we're working really hard at CMDA. And I, uh, I think our students appreciate it that we are trying to protect their future ability to practice medicine according to their deeply held religious beliefs. I think that's, that's admirable, actually. And this conflation between faith and being in, demonized, you know, the, the, as soon as you say you're Christian, then automatically you're painted, or at least they try to paint you as other. You know, your sex is racist, you're intolerant, and that's not what it's about. And just out of a corollary to that question, what happens if the medical student is rotating through GYN and that is part of their training? Can they refuse to do that without being penalized by their, you know, in terms of grading and that sort of thing? So for your listeners who are out there for social media, uh, our vice president for government relations, Jonathan Embody, um, has been in D.C. for over 20 years and uh, has been doing a great job networking. During the Obama administration, when it when um, George W. Bush's uh, last-minute uh, HHS uh, right of conscience protection statute, George W. Bush put it in place, um, Obama immediately overturned it. Um, and Jonathan saw what was coming, significant violation, violations potentially. He developed a resource and a website called freedomnumeral2care.org, freedomnumeral2care.org. And it is an amazing supportive resource for healthcare professionals of faith. It is supported by the Catholic Medical Association. A number of organizations are uh, supporting this particular uh, website and resource. There are a lot of resources for students or residents or even employed physicians in hospitals who are asked to do uh, things that they just cannot bring themselves to do. And uh, all kinds of links to even gratis pro bono uh, attorneys who are willing to support 
students and residents who are being asked and forced and being penalized, discriminated against because they won't participate in especially abortion um, in, in an OBGYN rotation. That's available. There's no reason in 2019, God willing, for the many years to come, that any student, resident, or graduate would have to be forced to participate in abortion in this country. The laws are supporting uh, the right of conscience. Uh, and so I just encourage your listeners to go to freedomtocare.org and, and uh, get links to all kinds of help, background on the statutes, the Weldon Church Amendment, Coates Snow, even in the Affordable Care Act, if you'll look, uh, the right of conscience, whether or not there's teeth, that's a, a different issue, but at least in script, the right of, of conscience for uh, professionals to refuse to do abortion is there, uh, Dr. George. You know, our time goes so quickly when, you know, it's just a wealth of information, and I learned a great deal just listening to you, and I know my listeners did too. Again, how can people go to your website? What's the best way to reach out to you? Just go to cmda.org, and you'll see um, all kinds of resources. Uh, I think probably the gold out there are our position statements on all sorts of issues, uh, church leaders, pastors, lay leaders, um, anyone looking to see a biblical perspective on any of these um, public policy issues uh should go there, a physician assisted suicide euthanasia, as I mentioned. My predecessor, uh, Dr. Stevens, um, uh, bio, bioethicist, uh, developed a lot of these position statements with our board over the last quarter of a century. So cmda.org forward slash positions, but the, a lot of other resources as well. Um, pro-life, obviously, um, and that's where I would encourage your listeners to go. I want to thank you so much for coming on. It was really as a pleasure to have you have you on the show, and I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you so much, and thanks, everybody, for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.